Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Sophie. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. We had a really interesting podcast last week. We talked about the topic of teen sex. What is that? It was a very scary topic going into it because it's a volatile place to be. But, you know, I think we learned a lot. We uh, talked about the percentage of teenagers who are actually doing and engaging in any kind of sexual activity. We talked different ways to approach and have that dialogue because a lot of parents are very freaked out to have that dialogue. They don't know if they should even open the topic. If they do, what, what are they doing? Are they giving their child permission to have sex? We learned different ways to talk about it. We also learned how to create an environment in our home where a child will feel safe talking about anything starting at an early age so that when you get to that hormonal teenage time of talking about sex, you already have the environment set where it's safe and it's cool and your child feels that they can talk to you about anything because the judgment isn't going to be there. The dialogue will. And then lastly, I think it was really important that we talked about how to talk about the specifics of the sexual activity and safe sex and condoms and pregnancy and, and diseases and all those kinds of things. So take a listen to it. It's on uh, my website on iTunes, and it's great information, and it's something that you probably have to go back and listen to a couple of times because there's a lot of good tidbits in there, but you may not get it all the first time because it's a lot. But I think it's really vital, important information, and listen to it, and even listen to it with your teen if you need to because it needs to be discussed because that's the way that we give our teens power by knowledge. All right, so this week... We have a whole nother topic, which is very prevalent, very interesting. And you hear this word thrown around a lot of times, like, oh, they have ADHD or, oh, they have attention deficit disorder or whatever it is because somebody's distracted or they're hyperactive. But let me tell you, I've treated a lot of this. And everything that's hyperactive is not hyperactivity from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I, I oftentimes compare it to something like asthma. Every time a patient wheezes, it doesn't mean they have asthma. It means they're wheezing and you've got to figure it out. So every time a patient has hyperactivity or presents that way or seems that way, that doesn't mean they have ADD or ADHD. It means that they have a symptom that we have to look deeper to to see what it's connected to, where its origin is, and does it really meet the criteria of a disorder. And maybe it does meet the criteria of ADHD. Maybe it doesn't. So we're going to be talking about ADHD today. What is it? How do you treat it? Gee, it doesn't make sense, a question I get all the time, that if you've got a hyperactivity disorder, why are you giving somebody an amphetamine? Doesn't that just ramp somebody up? We're going to find out about that. We're also going to talk about, is there a difference between an adult having it and a child having it? Is there a difference in the ADHD that a child presents with versus an adult? And then we're going to end our, our podcast today with some really good tidbits and tips to take away. In the meantime, we've got a great expert joining us. I want to hear from you guys as well. 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW or 1-855-767-4966. Every caller will receive a free signed copy of my book, Side by Side, the revolutionary mother-daughter conflict resolution book. And remember, every mom and daughter are going to do it, so you might as well do it right. And come on back. We're going to have our guest expert. He's a uh, world-known expert in ADHD, and he's talked about it, he's taught about it, and he's organized about it. So when you come back, we're going to be talking to Dr. Dennis Rosen, one eight five five sophie now or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. I want to hear from you.
So joining me today to talk about ADD, ADHD, and all those things in between is Dr. Dennis Rosen. Dr. Dennis Rosen is a developmental pediatrician who's in private practice in that cold place of Massachusetts, and he'll tell us about that. He's also got a long history of his involvement in many different areas of ADHD, ADD, hyperactivity, and all of that kind of stuff, teaching, educating parents, students, doctors. We're going to hear all about it but I really want to meet him and I want to pick his brain about one specific topic. Dr. Rosen, are you with me? Yes, hi. Nice to uh, be here with you, Dr. Sophie. Thank you. Thank you for giving me your time and all of our listeners. I have a question before we even start, because people say this to me all the time. You're a child psychiatrist, Dr. Sophie. What's the difference between that and going to a developmental pediatrician for some of my mental health stuff or ADHD treatment or that kind of thing? So. Can we answer that up front and clear it up, please? Well, uh, child psychiatrists, developmental pediatricians, and primary care providers can all treat problems with attention. Uh, the uh, approach is similar for all of them to take into account just what you suggested a few minutes ago, understanding the chicken and egg. Is the attention problem the cause of the difficulty, or is it the effect of the difficulty? And in order to do that, you go through a process of a differential diagnosis, you do a complete exam, you do a thorough history, you get information from many sources, particularly the parents, if it's a child, and in adolescents and young adults, I get information from partners, friends, coaches, counselors, because I can't depend necessarily on my own observations, ironically, uh, or those of the patient who's coming in to see me. I need a lot of information. and. Understanding what's primary and what's secondary is the key issue. As many as 50 to 60% of children and upwards to 60 to 70 to 80% of adolescents and adults have a second or third problem with their attention difficulty, and differentiating what's the cause and what's the effect is a big challenge. So seeing a primary care provider is always a good way to start, working with a developmental pediatrician or a child psychiatrist to further uncover some of these subtle collaborative or associated conditions is a good next step. Only about 20% of the children and young adults that I see, uh, I see who are treatment naive or who have never been seen before for this problem. That means 80% of them have been evaluated previously. And I think it's always reasonable to start with your primary care provider. They have the best understanding of the background of your family, yourself, uh, whatever issues have occurred beforehand. All right. So tell me something then. If 80% have been evaluated on some level before you get to see them, does that mean they failed treatment or they have had the workup appropriately, then you take it over? Combinations of the above. Many of them have failed an initial medical treatment. Some of them have not been treated directly with medical treatment and have instead been treated with emotional behavioral supports or uh, other assessments, educational evaluations. The, the, when they come to me, sometimes it's to get a further understanding, or to you, to, it's to get a better understanding of the emotional behavioral issues and a clarification about the learning uh, issues, which are the two most common other causes of attention problems. I also, as you do, uh, have to consider alternate medicines that may not have been tried previously, and very many times it may be the same medicine that they've had before, but the dose wasn't titrated or adjusted or manipulated to a different time of the day 
or an expanded dose. Right. So what you're really saying is the expertise that a developmental pediatrician or a child psychiatrist brings to this picture is a great addition. Either you start with your primary care and it's not working or you start there and you get referred over, but there is an expertise that's brought to that picture. Yes. All right. So tell me a little bit of the statistics that you have found over these years about ADHD and and your treatment and your involvement in it. What have you seen from a statistical standpoint? Well, in in children between the ages of three or four, and the American Academy has recently passed criteria for actually assessing children who are four or five years of age who are in the preschool age who may very well meet the criteria for ADHD. And the criteria are developmentally inappropriate levels of attention, hyperactivity or impulsivity before the age of seven that produces clinically significant interference in more than one setting. It has to be in more than one setting and for at least six months. Now let's talk about that for a minute because this is key for many parents to understand. Multiple settings, that they have to have this interference in multiple settings. Tell us more. Well, for a child it would be in school and at home or in after school and at home. But why? Like mom or dad would say, well, what does it matter if he's inattentive, if he's inattentive? Yeah, because I think that helps us differentiate your original question of how significant a problem is this? What's the primary issue and what's the secondary issue? I see a lot of children who, due to complex issues in their family system in their home, look like they have attention deficit disorder, but in school, they're really quite fine. Right. The other way around. Right. Where parents hear from teachers that there's a problem, they don't see it themselves at home. Right. So the point, point is, concept. the point is, there's a lot of can be a lot of variables that drive attention hyperactivity from a physical blood sugar issue maybe or whatever to a conflict in a home so that everything that's hyperactive and distracted is not always Can I comment further about your point? Yeah, please. In young children, ages three to eight, they very often present with the impulsivity and overactivity. As you alluded to before in your comments, as they get older, the normal process of development diffuses that level of impulsivity, of overactivity, so that most of the people that I see after the age of 8, 9, and 10 have the inattentive type. Same thing, obviously, in adults. So when someone presents with inattention as an adolescent or an adult, they may meet the criteria for ADHD if it's present in more than two environments. But they may not have the overactivity and impulsivity that is so obvious to the outside observer. An important difference in statistics of the kind of attention deficit that may occur depending upon age. Got it. All right, let's, are you open to take a caller with me? Then we'll come back and talk about how you diagnose it. Sure. All right, let's take a caller. We have on the phone Monica. Monica, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank Hi, you. It's Dr. Sophie and Dr. Rosen. Hi, Monica. Hi, how are you? Thanks Good. for taking Can my call. You? So my question is, my daughter was diagnosed with ADHD, and I'm terrified of actually putting her on the medication. I just think, I I don't really want him on any medication, and I'm just afraid of the side effects and how it will affect her. I don't want her personality to change. I don't don't want her, you know, to break her spirit. I don't want, like, mood-altering medications. Hmm. Most parents share your concern. It's the doctor's responsibility to explain the potential risks and the potential benefits. The statistics suggest that if your daughter truly does meet the criteria for attention deficit, she's at some risk 
for having greater problems by not being tr treated than the problems she may experience from being treated. My experience is that if you prepare parents properly and you work with them in training, which to me is the most important part of your visit, you can prepare them for the potential risks of side effects, which are most often easily dealt with because they're most often related to appetite, sleep, and very rarely related to mood, though it's possible. And I also involve people like Dr. Sophie and other uh, psychiatrists or counselors to work on some of the emotional issues so the family doesn't see the medication as the only answer to the problem. If they don't use the medicine as the only issue, they feel they're using a multimodal strategy to assess and treat their child. Well, but Dr. Rosen, what do you do when you have a parents who say, well, aren't kids too, this, too young for medication? Their brains are developing. Why are we putting chemicals in their brain? Yeah. I try and diffuse that kind of thinking because Kids that age are taking medicines for a whole lot of issues that are critical and necessary for their emotional growth, for their physical growth. This is a necessity for some children in order to make academic progress, in order to ultimately improve self-esteem, in order to feel good about themselves, to relate appropriately to peers. And if parents appreciate and understand the interference that the problem has with their self-esteem, with their relationships with their family, with their relationships with their peers at school, I think they can step up and consider this. And also, it's a trial. It's not a permanent decision in their lives. Exactly. Every month, this decision can be reviewed. That's really important to know. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that, Monica? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I just, you know, all, all three of my kids could have been told at one point in time in their life that they need medication, and, I, and for some reason... I'm stuck with that because I just do not want all three of my kids to be on medication. Well, but why? I mean, if they need it, if they had diabetes, wouldn't you give it to them? Yes, because I think it's just a, I think it's just a, a stigma that I have. I think it's me just thinking I don't want all three of my kids to be on medication it, because it's going to make me feel like everyone thinks that I'm a bad parent my kids. Or that you're a bad parent or your kids are broken or something like that. Right. Well, right. it's important for you to have someone to talk to about right. this because it sounds like you're acknowledging your own ambivalence about this. Maybe something from your background and your family about taking medicine made it difficult for you. And being able to talk about that is important because what happens with a lot of parents that I see is they feel the way you feel. And so when the prescription is given, they ultimately agree to try it, but then they don't use it every day. They use it some days and not other days. And they're quick to stop it without giving it a full chance and a full trial. So working through your ambivalence first may be necessary before your daughter should be on a medicine so you can understand what your feelings are. Great I would also suggest right. a good book called Taking Charge of ADHD by Dr. Barkley. It's a great resource for you about children. And Thomas Brown's book, The Unfocused Mind of Children, ADHD. Both are excellent for your review. There's a particularly good one about girls by Pat Quinn, called Understanding Girls with ADHD. You might want to look at that because it's also about women and adults. Understanding Girls and Women with ADHD by Pat Quinn, Q-U-I-N-N. And you can get that through uh, addwarehouse.com uh, or 800-233-9273. Excellent resource for you to begin to think about yourself and your daughter uh, and your family. Thank you. Uh, one other question okay, I want to ask. Great, that thank you. Another question I want to bring in before Monica hangs up is, when and how do you tell a parent, Dr. Rosen, when to take and balance the medicine? 
Do you take it when you're only in school? Do you take it when on the weekends, on holidays? Do you do breaks? That kind of thing. It's a critical question. Initially, if there's a good response, I wouldn't stop the medicine on weekends and holidays. You wouldn't stop a medicine for diabetes if it's effective. It comes back to the basic understanding that ADHD is not a school-based disorder. We talked before about the definition being one that has to be in two environments. If it's happening at home and at school, and that's the basis for the diagnosis, it doesn't make sense to stop the medicine on a holiday or weekend, or in my mind, even in the summer. You might adjust the dosage down, but to stop it entirely not only is a disservice to you and to your family for treating a real problem, but it means jumbling up the central nervous system by taking a child on and off medicine in ways that I can't imagine would be healthy for them. So I like the idea that you would work through your own ambivalence and questions about this yourself and think of just one child at a time, not all three. It feels a little overwhelming to think of all three. Work through your feelings about the one child first. Work with a coach or a counselor uh, that will help you put that in perspective. And good luck. Thank you, Monica. Okay, that, great. Thank you so much. Great advice, Dr. Rosen. Before we take another caller or voicemail, two questions. One is, why would you give somebody who may be hyperactive an amphetamine? Yeah. Uh, the medicines have a strange name. They're called stimulants. It's, it's a disservice to the benefit they provide. What they actually do is they stimulate a part of the central nervous system whose job it is to facilitate focus and attention. They inhibit a particular process in the brain, but they do it by stimulating some chemicals that are there. They're not really stimulating the central nervous system. They're just stimulating a particular chemical that helps inhibit the overactivity, lessen the impulsivity, improve the attention. So it's interesting. They're called stimulants, but they actually focus and calm down. And to further complicate the matter, we now have two or three additional non-stimulant medicines right. that are not controlled medicines that do the same thing. They improve attention. They decrease impulsivity and overactivity. So physicians have a lot in their holster, a lot in their armamentarium to choose from, and certain children will benefit more from a non-stimulant while others will benefit more from a stimulant. There are many choices, and good timing today, Dr. Sophie. About an hour ago, a new medicine, a liquid medicine, methylphenidate liquid, has become available to the public. It will be in our pharmacies as of January 1. It was announced about an hour ago. I saw that. It's great news, isn't it? Yeah, interesting. For kids who can't swallow. Exactly. If you don't ask first or actually have a child try and swallow a tablet, doesn't make any sense to give them a medicine that's available in a capsule. Exactly. All right, my next question then is caffeine. Do you use it to diagnose? Do you use it to treat small kids that maybe aren't indicated for the medicines age-wise? I mean, what, what are your think, what's your thoughts? On a lot that? of people over the years have felt that caffeine or chocolate can treat ADHD. It's true that caffeine and chocolate are, quote-unquote, central nervous system stimulants. But the reason why... Uh, pharmaceutical companies go through elaborate studies is to fine-tune an exact form of this medicine that will be helpful, the safest possible form, while taking uh, coffee or chocolate is a very inexact way of looking at this. Right. My strategy is to go with traditional, standardized, 
well-documented, well-studied medicines in forms that are palatable to children and adults, in times that are realistic for them to be provided, and that can be monitored with a rating scale before, during, and after the treatment. If a physician is not monitoring side effects as well as good effects of medicine before, during, and after a treatment, they're not assessing properly right. the impact of the treatment. Right, and you don't know what world you're dealing with. Exactly. All right, let's take a voicemail. Hold on. Hi, Dr. Sophie. This is Samantha, and I know you're talking about ADHD this week, and you know, I've been diagnosed. I was diagnosed with it um, about 10 years ago and have been on medication ever since, and it has done wonders for school and everyday life, keeping me focused and on track, and it's just been a very, very successful way of treating the, the um, disability. However, I feel like when I'm on my medication, um, I'm a different person than when I don't take it, and especially when I, like, am coming off the medication as well, and I was wondering if this is normal and if there's anything that you can do to help prevent feeling this way or kind of keeping your personality and emotions at a stable place rather than maybe having the ups and downs. So just wanted to know. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. That's an interesting question, Dr. Rosen, because I think oftentimes people do rebound, they're irritable or have whatever from their medicine. And what would you say? Is it mostly from your experience the the medication choice and it's a side effect and yeah. something else will smooth it out? It's a tough question and it is a common uh, reactive process. Uh, I always monitor with my rating scale not only behavior and attention and emotions from 7 to 4 or 7 to 5, but I have a double column response so that the individual either observing their child or commenting as a young adult like the young woman we just spoke with uh, would also comment about what the behavior is from 4 to 9 at night. And sometimes that behavior is a separate problem than the ADHD, but occasionally it's a, it's a transition and return to the ADHD symptoms, and you have to make a new decision. Do you expand the dose and increase it so that it lasts longer and tapers off more slowly? I have a number of young adults who are taking a methylphenidate patch because that seems to taper off easily. There are some longer-acting forms of amphetamine uh, th uh, that have been effective in causing less rebound. So this is an important decision that the doctor has to make. There are pumps, there are patches, there are beads, and now liquids. Pumps, patches, beads, and liquids to choose from. What more do you need? It's like a candy store. It's a lot to choose from, and when you have a side effect that's a concern, you have to taper or adjust or consider some change to facilitate and minimize what is disturbing her. What I'm reassured about her comment is, she has had success and a good response to the medicine. There's a good chance that the doctor who's working with her can find a way to deal with her rebound symptoms, as you suggested, to minimize them and to continue to facilitate this positive response. So she's heading in the right direction. She just needs some fine-tuning and some careful assessment of the different times of the day. Got it. Okay. So do you then believe that adults can have ADHD? I do. As I suggested before, the predominant presentation in adults is inattentive. But my personal experience with the college students that I see, and I'm in the five college town in Amherst and Northampton in Western Mass, where 
my whole practice could be with college students. I'm sure. I wanted it to be. Very often, they're driven, and adults are driven by factors other than just their attention. And because, as you suggested in your opening comments, the commonality and the ease with which our society is now willing to talk about ADHD may preempt our ability to be open and honest about other feelings that could be complicating it, such as anxiety, depression, anger, relationship problems. That's why in adults, I simply insist that a mental health provider be involved, that an attempt be made to look carefully at these other areas, either by interview or rating scale, or with the help of a mental health provider, uh, to look more carefully that there may be a more primary cause for their attention problem, and treating them with a stimulant medicine for ADHD may only accentuate some of these other symptoms. Right, exactly. I'm much more reticent about trusting a diagnosis of inattentive ADD in a 22, 23, 24-year-old than I am in a, uh, you know, a 6 to 18. Right, right. No, absolutely. And, you th- and what do you tell people when they ask you, like, Dr. Rosen, is this ever going to go away? Well, you know, my feeling is there is a biological basis for this. But we, as, uh, as we get older, learn other strategies that are non-medical to deal with it. We don't have to depend on medicine to address these problems. But... 30 to 40 percent of people become asyndromatic, meaning the actual symptoms of the syndrome may lessen to the degree that they may not formally have a diagnosis. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be challenged in their work setting, right. when they're driving, right. in relationship, in a whole variety of other areas. So it's important to face some of the challenging issues of what was really going on in your body. There is one little piece that I need to add. We now have a new interesting DNA test that is available to look at the enzyme metabolism or the way the individual's own body breaks down these medicines and uses them. Never before has this been available. It's called psychoneurogenomics. And we now have the ability to make some decisions in some cases that are based on that individual's own body that's special to them and not a study done with 400 other people. So that's going to become a greater factor over the next few years in helping us make these decisions. Right, and then they're more pinpointed and, and better focused. Right. And okay. better able to make a decision about patient A rather than the 400 people in the study that exactly. that medicine. One other question, and then I will let you go. What do you say to people when they say, well, you know, we have substance abuse in our family, and I don't know if I want to start little Johnny on uh, a s- amphetamine? It's a tough issue, but the literature is increasingly clear that treating ADHD in the long run actually decreases substance use rather than increasing it. It's become very clear that when you don't address ADHD symptoms in adolescence, they have a greater chance of self-medicating with alcohol, with marijuana, with other substances. Okay. So the choice to treat is a protective measure, not a dangerous one. All right. And what do we tell adults that don't want medicinal kinds of treatment? What do we say to them? Here, use this, do that, acupuncture. What, what do you recommend and support? There are a variety of alternative therapies, but none of them are definitive. There's some subtle evidence that relaxation training exercise, EEG biofeedback, even meditation and massage may be helpful. Certainly I recommend fatty acid omega-3s, but to think that they will be as definitive and impressive and predictable in their improvement as the foregone 
clarity of the studies that have been done in all ages with stimulant and non-stimulant medicines, I think would be naive. And I want to caution people that the overwhelming majority of dietary strategies can not only be unhelpful, but potentially harmful. So elimination diets and uh, uh, herbal remedies are to be questioned, and certainly there are dangers in megavitamin or megamineral treatments, as well as amino acid supplementation. So please be careful. Use your work with a mental health provider to assist you, and read and be cautious. Talk to your primary care provider. Thank you. You have proven why we have experts on this show, Dr. Rosen. So tell me a little bit about you, where we find you, and some of your great work. Well, I'm in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I, if people have questions, they can certainly reach me at my email, which is D2R2MD. Wow. Those are my initials. Mm. I'm glad to respond to questions. I, uh, I worked at UMass on and off for many years and set up clinics uh, around the state. Um, I'm passionate and interested in this work because ADHD impacts on so many aspects of the lives of the children and young adults I work with. But I appreciate your inviting me, Dr. Sophie. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Be well. You too. Well, that was very informative and interesting. We talked a lot about ADHD, treatments, great questions, great voicemails. It's just an unbelievable disorder that has so many roots into so many pieces of our life that we would be foolish if we really didn't take a good look at it. Any parent didn't really open their eyes and their understandings of it. And as Dr. Rosen said, deal with a lot of your own issues, fears, those kinds of things that may get in the way of you opening up your mind and heart to treatment for your child. Because treatment, as he said, is so important and it is protective because you're, you're taking away and eliminating many different pitfalls and barriers that your child may have from cracks within their self-esteem, self-respect, their social settings, their academic achievements, all those kinds of things oftentimes are connected to untreated attentional disorders. So we got to take a look at it. We have to treat it because it is there and we can't ignore it. And it is responsive to treatment, which is really a great thing because it's a different story if we could diagnose something, but we can't treat it. But we can diagnose it and we can treat it and it is successful and responsive. So it's a no-brainer to take a look at it and open up the options. One of the key factors that we also have to do as we go through the diagnosis of ADD slash ADHD is there are certain criteria to meet ADD, attention deficit disorder versus ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. All of these disorders within the mental health spectrum have criteria, just like the criteria it, that is expected and dictated from the American Diabetes Association for Diabetes and the American Heart Association for Hypertension and Cardiovascular Disease. So the American Psychiatric Association has certain criteria for our disorders or the mental health psychiatric disorders. ADHD, ADD, both have certain criteria. One has impulsivity, one has hyperactivity, one has certain time length of the criteria, others have um, different places that you have to have it. So there is criteria to make that clear distinction between ADD and ADHD. Nonetheless, once you decide which one is, is present in your child or I in my patient, the treatment pretty much stays the same, but it's still very important to be able to delineate between the ADD or the ADHD piece because oftentimes the non-medical treatments like structure or behavioralist or 
any of those kinds of things that don't come in a prescription are going to be dictated by the oftentimes type of ADD or ADHD that you have. So understand that there is a, a distinction and that criteria can be looked up, understood, and it really gives you a better insight to really fine tune the treatment potential and options for your child or you. Reminding you today that I am available on web on my website at www.drsophie.com and on iTunes. Again, www.drsophie.com. My new phone app will be available soon, so keep your eyeballs open. I'll be letting you know through Twitter. Again, the voicemail is always there for you 24-7 at 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW or 1-855-767-4966. I want to wrap up again with these four tips for you to take away about attention deficit disorder. And there's a million other things to talk about. So write into me about ADHD if you have issues, you have questions, you've had some trials or tribulations. But really the key thing to remember is if you think your child has it, three Ages three to eight, those kids are going to really present themselves as impulsive. They're the, ch- they're the children that are running around. They're not sitting in their seat. You're hearing from the teacher that Johnny gets his work done when I stand next to him or he has no noise around him. But until then, he's all over the place. That three to eight years of age, that presentation of ADHD is impulsive. After about eight or around the age of 10, you're going to get the inattentive type, the kids that just don't pay attention, but they're not running around all over the place. And that is the way an adult will present oftentimes. So that's the distinction. The second thing I want you to understand is start with your primary care doc. There's nothing wrong with going there, finding out the best places to go, or let them start out with some of the testing or some of the referrals that you may need to educate yourself and then go from there. Again, always get medical clearance. Make sure your doctor is checking labs and looking at hearts and listening to lungs because you don't want to say that something is attention deficit or hyperactive or impulsive if it may be a medical problem and you miss it. And then again, the key thing to any of the treatments to this are a relationship that you feel comfortable with with your doctor because there's a million questions that are going to come up for you from when to give the medicine to which choice to do and what are the side effects and educating yourself, big key factors that if you don't connect with your doctor and you don't learn to trust your doctor, then you're not going to move forward. So a good relationship with your doctor is key. So there are four great tips to take away to learn how to start to navigate your child as they go through the possible diagnosis and treatment of ADHD or ADD. Again, one eight five five sophie now I'm always there for you to talk to or leave your voicemail or one eight five five seven six seven four nine six six. Keep your eyeballs open for the new phone app. I'll let you know when that's out through Twitter, Facebook, and on the podcast. Side by side, my book, The Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Conflict-Free Resolution Book. you got to have it so you don't argue with your child, especially if you're a mama. Listen to me, look at me on Twitter and Facebook and follow me. And visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up. And of all things, don't forget to sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey.